The whole idea of calorie density is for weight loss, that's what it's usually used for. To give you an example, let's say you pick up some sugar. Sugar has four calories in every gram. That sounds like it's got a lot of calories, but it's really not as high as chicken fat. Let's say I take chicken fat. How many calories per gram does it have? Not four, not five, not six. It's got nine calories per gram. And as a general rule, carbohydrates and sugars have four calories per gram. Fats have nine. So what that means is if you are eating more carbs and less fat, most people are going to more easily lose weight because there aren't so many calories in there. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQs with us. Coming up today, a whirlwind kind of a show. Actually, you could say that it's out of this world. We'll tell you why in just a little bit. But first, it's time to open up the doctor's mailbag. Bring in Dr. Barnard. This was a segment from The Exam Room Live, answering lots of your questions because nutrition school is in session, my friend, including a great question from a viewer who wanted to know about calorie density and what it was and how can we use that then, understanding it, to help us lose weight. Dr. Barnard is going to get into that. Plus, we're going to talk about the fat that is found in nuts. Can that also clog your arteries the same way that sausage wood or bacon wood? We're going to find out. That's another great question. And then we're going to talk about beans, canned beans to be specific. Is it better to get the ones with or without salt? A viewer had a very specific reason for asking that question. And the answer may or may not surprise you. So stick around for that. And then after we wrap up the doctor's mailbag, we're going to hear from maybe the only doctor on the planet who can say that before they became a physician, they worked at NASA's space shuttle program. A genuine bona fide rocket scientist turned doctor, Dr. Nikki Davis will be joining us in just a little bit to help us understand what lifestyle medicine is and how that differs from when you go to see your primary care physician. What's the difference in philosophies and how can that help us achieve optimum health? We're gonna get into that with that former rocket scientist in just a little while. But first, let's go ahead and open up that doctor's mailbag. Dr. Barnard, first question that comes to us from a viewer on YouTube wants to know about calorie density. First of all, what is it? And once we understand it, how can we use it to lose weight? Okay, calorie density just means how many calories are there per unit of food that you're eating. And it's usually measured by how many calories there are per gram of food. And to give you an example, let's say you pick up some sugar. Uh, sugar has four calories in every gram. That sounds like it's got a lot of calories, but it's really not as high as chicken fat. Let's say I take chicken fat. How many calories per gram does it have? Not four, not five, not six. It's got nine calories per gram. And as a general rule, carbohydrates and sugars have four calories per gram. Fats have nine. So what that means is if you are eating more carbs and less fat, 
most people are going to be are going to more easily lose weight because there aren't so many um, calories in there. However, people get a little more, a little fancier with it. And so, yes, fattier foods pack a lot of calories. They're calorie dense. Um, foods that are rich in in carbohydrates, starchy foods like grains and beans and vegetables, less calorie dense. But foods that are rich in fiber get some special benefits. So white rice, that carbohydrate has four calories per gram, just like brown rice, but the brown rice has the fiber around it. And that fiber has more or less no calories at all. So if you have high fiber foods, they fill you up, but they don't have calories and that reduces the calorie density even more. And lastly, water, how about water? Hmm, zero calories. So if I take my vegetables and I chop them up, um, if there's carbohydrate and fiber, less calories than if it was uh, a cream of chicken soup or the cream of the chicken had a lot of fat, and a lot of calories. Um, but if I, if I chop up my vegetables and I eat them as vegetables, I can reduce the energy density even more by turning them into soup because the water has no calories at all. So uh, the whole idea of calorie density is for weight loss. That's what it's usually used for. Uh, I want to go to the foods that have the least calorie density, and that's obviously fiber and water, but it really means vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, the ones that are not so fatty. And that's, that's how you use it. Next question is one that really a lot of people can probably use this particular information because nearly everybody has at least one can of beans in their pantry. And so this viewer on YouTube wants to know when it comes to canned beans, is it better to get them with or without salt? They're asking because the ones without salt actually contain calcium chloride, whereas the ones with salt do not. Um, first of all, I'm glad you're eating your beans. However you're getting them, that's good. Um, even if they have the salt in them, beans beat the heck out of spam. So it's always a good thing to, good thing to do. Um, they're high in fiber. They're high in healthy, complex carbohydrates. They're very nutritious, zero cholesterol. Um, but the fine point is, wait a minute, do you get the no salt added ones or the ones with added salt? Generally speaking, if your salt intake is getting over about two grams a day, that's going to be in the range where it's going to start affecting blood pressure for many people. So going low salt is good. So generally speaking, yes, it's worth it to choose the no salt added ones or reduced salt ones. But if you are nervous about cooking your beans, you might give it a try. I felt that way too. I thought life's too short to spend you know, my time soaking and cooking beans. And then I realized something really important. They soak themselves. They don't require supervision. <laughs> so you take your beans, dried beans, put them in a, in a big tub of water um, and just leave them overnight. And you actually don't have to supervise them. And then the next day, drain that water away, replace it with fresh water and boil them for an hour, or give or take, until they're nice and soft. They should not be al dente. And once again, you can do something else while they're cooking and you will discover it's extremely cheap. It tastes a little bit better than the store-bought ones because they're so fresh. And then you are completely in charge of whatever goes into them. Salt, no salt, uh, spices, no spices, whatever you want. And one thing I like to do is take those cooked beans. This is more than you asked for, Chuck, isn't it? Sorry. Um, just, <laughs> just one last tip. Um, get your black beans cooked up or pinto beans or whatever. And get one of these little, do you know those immersion blenders? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The kind you, you take it in your hand and you go, <laughs> you, you can cook down, whiz down the, the beans and then spoon them into those little tiny Tupperware 
uh, portion type containers and freeze them. And you can bring them to work, run it under a little hot water. The, the beans break out like an ice cube. You can nuke it in your microwave and you've got a whole serving of beans that you can have with rice, with vegetables, with a little salsa, whatever you want. Costs pennies, is extremely convenient. And you just throw them in your freezer. You've got one whenever you want it. All this talk kind of gives me an idea for your next book. I think it should be Barnard's Book of Beans. And I'm telling <laughs> you, th that, that could help out so many people. Fantastic nutrition info. Th the recipes, I mean, good gracious, you could write volumes of them. You tuck yeah. that one away. Uh, beans are good food. They're healthy food. I'm a big fan, big fan. All right, Rebecca wants to know about nuts. She wants to know, uh, we know that high fat diets often can clog arteries, but what about the fat found in nuts? Can that also clog the artery? The fat that's in nuts is, um, it's high in calories, just like every other kind of fat. But the, so, so in other words, if you're trying to lose weight, you might want to go easy on the nuts. But the effect on your cholesterol level is, it's going to be a not guilty verdict. Um, the fat in nuts is much lower in the saturated fat that you'll find in, in butter, for example, or in chicken fat. Um, that saturated fat is the one that raises your cholesterol. Nuts don't have that. Nuts don't have cholesterol either. So as far as your cholesterol level goes, nuts can get a green light. Uh, let's talk about diabetes. This is a follow-up question to a conversation I had recently with uh, Cyrus Kambata from uh, Mastering Diabetes. Lots of great questions came in that day. We couldn't get to them all, but I really like this one. Somebody asked flat out, is there a single study showing that sugar directly causes diabetes instead of fat? You know, there have been a number of studies that s seemed to show that at first glance. And there was um, a, a quite a good seeming meta-analysis where researchers looked at at sugary foods and risk of developing diabetes and in fact um it's it seemed that that sugary sodas were a particular problem but then researchers discovered something else non-sugared sodas did the same thing in fact they were as bad or worse and what that suggested was it wasn't so much the sugar in the soda as the fact that the soda is consumed with hamburgers and cheeseburgers and fried chicken and that kind of thing. Um, so then when you, when researchers have looked further, they have found that by and large, sugars, uh, sugar intake is not associated with diabetes. This doesn't mean that having a lot of refined sugar is health food. It's not. But diabetes itself, type 2 diabetes, the common type, begins as insulin resistance in your muscle and liver cells. They're, they're, they're not able to get sugar out of the blood into the cell because they're not responding to insulin normally. And that comes from fat in the foods that you eat, packing fat inside fat inside your cells. So bottom line, um, sugar is not really health food, but it's not the cause of diabetes. That's way too simplistic. Um, diabetes comes from eating, unfortunately, a typical Western type diet that packs the fat into our cells. That leads to insulin resistance. That leads to diabetes. Let's stick with the S train here from sugar. Let's go over to soy. Monique is wondering, is there a low fat way of eating soy? Uh, great question. Um, you will, the soybean is a little bit different from other beans in that black beans, pinto beans, very, very low in fat. The soy just by a fluke of nature has a little bit more, more fat in it. The fat in soy is what we would call good fat. It's not going to affect your cholesterol level things like that to any degree. But if you're really trying to cut down 
on the amount of fat you eat. You might have soy, but have it perhaps, uh, you can have more modest amounts. If you have a little slice of some grilled tofu or something for breakfast, you can have about three grams of fat in, in one serving. That's really not very much and not something I would really worry about. You, all, you will also see um, different brands vary in their fat content. And just look, some of, some of them are reduced fat and you can choose those if you'd like. Here's a question from Forrest, adopted a whole food plant-based diet, lost about five kilograms, definitely watching us from across the pond. Uh, congratulations on your success. Mm -hmm. Forrest says that they have lost about five kilograms, but have since stalled. They have another 10 to go. What advice can you offer? Okay. Well, first of all, congratulations on making the change. Congratulations on losing five kilos. What's that? 11 pounds, something like that. That's we'll great. go with that. Yep. Uh, you want to lose some more. Um, what I would do Number one, maintain your completely plant-based diet. If there's any animal contraband in there, get that out. No chicken, no fish, nothing. And then do a search and destroy for fatty foods. This is back to what we were talking about earlier, where oils, nuts, the fat that they contain is not as bad as the fat that's in animal products for your cholesterol level. But for your waistline, all fats are about the same. They're all loaded with calories. That's that calorie density thing. So stick with the vegan diet, but go really low oil. What does that mean? It means don't use oils when you're preparing foods. If you're buying a salad dressing, get the non-oil types and be really modest with nuts, peanut butter, uh, avocados. Those are the, the fattier foods. And what you'll typically see is your weight loss then picks up again. Uh, let's talk about cooking methods. We have a couple of questions in the mailbag about those. We'll start with microwaving. Someone wants to know, is microwaving food safe? And if so, does it lock in the nutrients or does it kill them off? Um, microwaving is probably fine. And when microwaves were, were first introduced, I was with you. I was nervous about it. I would go into the kitchen wearing my lead apron, push the button <laughs> and race out. Uh, just kidding. Um, but uh, we, we did wonder if microwaves were safe and, and the data that have come in seem to suggest that they are quite safe, um, assuming that your machine is relatively recent and is not emitting microwaves around your kitchen. Um, and then with regard to its effect on foods, uh, it, it does not remove the nutrition. It does not destroy it um, to any substantial degree. So microwaving is perfectly fine. And from a microwave to an air fryer, Juliana wants to know, is food cooked in an air fryer actually healthy? Yes. Uh, thumbs up for air frying. Yeah, you, you, you can go for it. And, you know, what's your alternative? You know, deep frying or something like that? No, air, air, air fryers are great. Um, and it's kind of a new thing, but people are really coming to enjoy it. All right. Question from Denise. It is colorectal cancer awareness month. She's got a great question. She wants to know, do the guidelines for colon cancer screenings after the age of 50 change if you've had a parent who has had colon cancer? Uh, the, if you have a parent with colon cancer, that means two things. Um, it can mean that you may be at sl slightly higher genetic risk, but it also might mean that you picked up some habits from your parents that might've stuck with you for a while. And maybe you're on a healthier diet now, but if we picked up not such good eating habits from our parents um, earlier in life, then our, our health will be influenced to the same extent that their health was influenced by their eating habits. What does that mean? That means that let's say my father and mother had colorectal cancer. They were a meat eater all their life. They gave that diet to me. And for half my life, I was a meat eater too. My risk is higher. Beauty is that if you change your diet now, 
your risk does gradually diminish and it gets lower and lower and lower. But it, but for colorectal cancer, it doesn't get to zero. So when you speak with your, your caregiver, talk with, talk, talk with your caregiver about how often you should have um, a colonoscopy or other kinds of screening. Um, it varies a lot and there, there are uh, gastroenterologists who recommend them every X number of years, every, every five years, for example, would be typical. Um, however, there are others who will say, no, don't have them that often. If you're following a healthy, low-fat vegan diet and you're attentive to your bowel patterns and so on, some, some uh, encourage having them, encourage people to have them much less frequently because they're concerned about adverse events. Uh, where I come down with this is that I, I really think that the benefits are, are substantial, particularly for people who haven't been on such a healthy diet. And the risks are really very, very small but do talk with your caregiver about how often you should have one. Dr. Barnard, the last time you were on the show, you and I spoke about iodine, and that has been actually really a conversation that's carried over for a number of months now. So we have a follow-up uh, from RM12, uh, RM on here at 1209. Wants to know, are nori sheets okay as a source of iodine, or should you be supplementing instead? Okay, great question. Uh, nori sheets are fine. And for people who don't know what we're talking about, you go into the sushi bar and they give you your cucumber roll or your asparagus roll. The green seaweed that it's wrapped in is nori. And they sell it at health food stores and it looks like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, but it's all green, that's seaweed. Nori is has a lot of iodine in it, but not too much. So it's not dangerous and you can have it every single day, but you might want to vary it, have some nori, have some wakame. Wakame is the one that's in these little kind of like sticks um, and you break it up and put it into your miso soup, which is super easy to make. Um, you might try another one that many people are not aware of called arame, A-R-A-M-E. And arame is really fine. And if you take some cucumbers, slice the cucumbers as thin as potato chips, lay them out, salt them a little bit, and put some arame on top and a little seasoned rice vinegar. And you will have the most delightful light salad you've ever had. And all of these have uh, abundant um, iodine in them. And if that's part of your daily routine, then I wouldn't bother supplementing. Next question comes to us from Italian Prankster. I like that name. I bet they have a lot of fun in life. Italian Prankster, can eating pasta or potatoes or bread clog arteries or cause other problems? Lots of starch there. The starch doesn't. What you put on the starch might. The potato goes into the oven with no cholesterol and no bad fat, but it comes out of the oven and we put the butter, cheese, doodles, bacon bits on top. That's the problem. Um, the spaghetti comes out of the pot, zero cholesterol, virtually no saturated fat, really healthy food. And what do we do? We put on the Alfredo sauce, you know, um, and the, the ground beef sauce. That's really the problem, not the starch. The, frankly, the more starch you eat or the more, the more it's part of your healthy diet, frankly, that's, that's fine. That's what uh, powers your muscles. That's what power your, powers your brains. The danger is what you're putting on top of it. Carrie Carroll is watching right now. I want to say hi. I don't think that we're related, but I appreciate you tuning in. Um, Sheena, this is a question that we get quite often, but always worth an ask. Is extra virgin olive oil actually healthy? Keep in mind what you're doing. Um, you're taking 10,000 olives and you're squishing all, all that oil and throwing away the fiber. 
and all the pulp. You're throwing away the olive and just using that extract, which is the oil. And it is better than beef fat or chicken fat. When I say better, it's much lower in saturated fat, which is the one that, that will clog your arteries. So beef fat, about 50% of the fat in beef is the saturated form that raises your cholesterol. Chicken fat, pretty high too, about 30%. With olive oil, down to about 14%. So it's better. Uh, it's, it's a lot better. And if a person switches from butter to olive oil, that's a healthy choice. But what you'll discover is when you start using non-oil cooking techniques and you've got other ways of dressing up your salad, then you find that that last bit of saturated fat that was in the oil is all gone and your calorie density, your energy density goes down too. And that means when you stand on the scale, it's smiling at you more than it was before. All right. So we talked olive oil. Now let's talk coconut oil. Take a question from Karen. She says, I don't actually eat coconut oil, but I do use it as moisturizer for my skin rather than using a commercial moisturizer with a laundry list of ingredients. Is that still bad for our bodies? I guess she's talking about absorbing fat through well, osmosis. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that's what she's asking, I think. And, and that's fine. You're not going to absorb it through your skin. But I'm glad you asked that because that gives me a chance to once again say that when people go to a vegan diet, um, don't skip the products that have coconut oil and palm oil in them because they're really, really high in saturated fat. But if you use it externally, it's okay. Uh, we have a question from a viewer wondering about fat in menopausal women. She says that she's been told that it is critically important. She wants to know whether or not that is accurate. Every person needs a little bit of fat in the diet, but that you, the amount that you need is so small that everybody is, is eating way more than that. What I mean is two or 3% of your calories should come from fat. If you ate nothing but broccoli, you would be getting probably more than two or 3% of your calories from fat because vegetables have tiny traces of natural oils that your body needs. You don't need more than that. And you said that you're a woman after menopause. Um, if you're thinking about, gee, how do I deal with weight gain now? How do I deal with minimizing my heart risk? How do I deal with hot flashes? Let me encourage you to follow a diet that has no animal products in it and keeps the oils really, really low. You, you don't need those, those uh, added oils. Question regarding uh, the diet with diabetes. Uh, we have a viewer at 1223 Kingdom Living wants to know, can you eat oatmeal if you have diabetes? As much as you want. Uh, um, oats is a source of healthy complex carbohydrates, but they have very little fat in them. So the fat is the part that drives that insulin resistance. So oatmeal is great. And oats have a special thing that you've probably heard about in their TV commercials. They say it'll lower your cholesterol. It does. Not a lot, but a couple of percentage points might come down on your cholesterol. And that's because of the soluble fiber that oats have. So knock yourself out. Okay, so we talked about the healthy fats that are found in nuts earlier, and we have another viewer now who's wondering about the fat that is found in avocado. Says that a doctor told me that avocados aren't necessarily the same as other fats. She says that you can eat an unlimited amount of them. Is that true? Can you eat as much guacamole as your heart desires? You can. It's just a question of what your health goals are. If you're trying, <laughs> if, if you're trying, I, I'm. Guacamole is delicious, you know, avocados are delicious. But if you're trying to lose weight, one of the really sad things is that there are a few uh, fruits of nature that happen to have enough fat to sink a ship and avocado is one of them. 
um, nuts are the other. Um, so if, if weight loss is not a goal for you, then I wouldn't worry too much about the fat that's in an avocado or in a nut. But if weight loss is a goal for you, you'll discover that you do better when you set the guac aside. Uh, Melma is making the transition over to a plant-based diet. And one of the foods that a lot of people first making that step look at are those Beyond Burgers. She's wanting to know whether or not they are healthy. They are methadone is what they are. Um, meaning if you are um, a meat addict, I, I'm, I'm a little tongue in cheek with you. If you're addicted to meat, then your methadone, in other words, your replacement drug is going to be the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger. And that's why those products were made. Um, when they made the Impossible Burger or, be, or the Beyond Burger, those kinds of things, they wanted to make sure that they would really appeal to meat eaters. And so it's kind of a transitional product that has the mouth feel that, that meat has. And they get that by having them be a little fattier than you're going to want to be over the long run. So go ahead and have them. Have them in your dietary transition. Nutritionally, they are way better than, than meat. And from the standpoint of the environment or, or ethical issues, way better. However, I encourage you not to stay at that stage for very long because you can do a whole lot better. There are other brands like Engine 2 and, and, and you'll see Boca Burgers and others that have much less fat than you'll see with, with those brands. Um, and your taste will adjust to the lower fat content of the diet. And sooner or later, you'll discover that you're into really simple foods like beans and grains and vegetables and things like that. This is an interesting question from Apis. They posted it at 1227. Wants to know, can salt increase your appetite? Wow, 1227. It's only 1228 right now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's, you're right up to, up to date. Yes. Um, salt can in, in, uh, influence your appetite in the following way. Um, that if you have food that has just a normal sodium content on it, um, you'll eat it. And when you're fin when you're full, you'll stop. Um, sodium does drive the, the, uh, the appetite a little bit. Um, and you can taste it. You want things that are salty. You want potato chips, you want pretzels and things like that. Um, and it might even drive the release of dopamine in the brain, which causes, uh, which, which, which relates to drug seeking behavior, overeating, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, uh, the more you salt things, the more you're going to tend to eat them. Um, and then just to punish you a little further, when you've eaten that salty food, um, what will happen is that you will gain a couple of pounds of water weight also. So the next day, the scale will not look so good. We've got time for a couple of more. And this one is going to speak to the heart of a lot of people. All right, here we go. This one is from Dance. And they write, I enjoy a little dark chocolate every single day. Would that add up, though, to being unhealthy in terms of saturated fat? Sorry to break your heart again. Yes, um, it does. Um, chocolate has some saturated fat in it. And so many people will just say, well, I'm just going to have one little taste and not more than that. And it's impossible really to say that that affects your health in any negative way. Um, but on the other hand, you're a person who goes to the 7-Eleven and you get a couple of chocolate bars and have a a binge at night, that's a substantial amount of saturated fat that you're having, and that will show up both on the scale and on your cholesterol test. All right, uh, let's go ahead and grab one. It's uh, from Laura. She writes, we are a vegan household, and that includes her children who are four and 19 months old. She's wondering if an omega-3 supplement for them is essential because they already consume chia seeds, walnuts, and ground flaxseed pretty regularly. 
Is that enough or should she be looking at supplements as well? First of all, uh, your kids are really lucky to have you as, as a parent. That's if every family would raise their kids the way you're doing, that's just fantastic. Um, kids do so well on vegan diets. Not only do they grow normally and grow very well and are healthy as kids, um, and you'll hear a lot of parents saying that their kids don't have the ear infections and things that their dairy eating friends have. But even more importantly than that, they grow up with understanding what healthy foods are and having taste for healthy foods, as opposed to the 45 year old meat eater who never had a healthy meal until after his heart attack and is trying to rewind the clock. So praise you for what you're doing. So you, the question is about omega-3. Omega-3s are naturally in a great many plant foods. You mentioned some like chia, but they're also, believe it or not, in, in green leafy vegetables and traces of them in beans. And if you're getting these as part of your routine, and if you're not getting a lot of competing fats, other fats like fryer grease, um, what you discover is that your body can handle the omega-3s uh, perfectly fine without any kind of extra supplement. So most people are not recommending omega-3 supplements for kids or for anybody. And I'm in that category, I have to say. But I would uh, strongly recommend uh, that your kids have a B12 supplement, which is in, it's in all the pediatric vitamins, like a Flintstones vitamin or any others. They have vitamin B12, and that's not negotiable. That's essential for kids and adults and, and everybody. They've got to have their B12. All right, let's try to knock out a couple of these rapid fire as we close up. Uh, this is from Vance Anth, wants to know, can I drink black coffee? Is that healthy? You can. Um, what, the research on coffee is, um, is is one of these puzzling things because it's partly fueled by the fact that people love coffee. So they're trying to find ways to rationalize their, their habit. Um, but the Alzheimer's disease data do seem to show that coffee drinkers have an advantage, but they only get it once they're drinking about five cups per day, which is a lot. Um, the downsides of coffee are number one, it does affect your personality. Um, it will affect your mood um, and it will, it is, caffeine is clearly addictive. And so we wake up in the morning, you are in physiological withdrawal. Um, and so you go into this kind of caffeine, caffeine roller coaster, which can also happen to people who like tea or like sodas, same story. The biggest issue with coffee is what goes into it. Uh, the creamer, um, if it is not, if it's a plant-based creamer and it's pretty low in fat, not a big issue. Um, if it's cream or half and half, it's a substantial source of saturated fat. All right. And then Corrine wants to know, does refined sugar cause arthritis? Is there a connection there? Short answer, I don't know. Um, but when we have looked at triggers for arthritis, and we've looked specifically at sugar, um, it, it's not a common trigger. Um, the real common triggers are things like dairy products, um, uh, eggs, and for some people, even some things like citrus fruits and tomatoes might play a role. Um, but with sugar, it has not risen very high on that list, meaning we're not seeing a lot of people for whom it appears to be a trigger. That said, sugar is not necessary. You don't need to sprinkle sugar into things you eat. And if you want to give it a try, uh, just go sugar-free for four or five weeks and see if your joints don't feel better. And if, if they do, then you can stick with it. All right. And final question comes to us from Aruna wants to know, are steel cut oats any better than the old fashioned rolled oats? Not really. Um, they're, they have a, um, 
a name that sounds trendier, but um, e even instant oats still have fiber in them. It hasn't been removed, although sometimes they add sugar and other things that you don't need. But what they've done with the oat is found just different ways of cutting it and smashing it so that it cooks more rapidly. Um, and so an uh, old fashioned oats are, it's a whole oat, but they kind of ran over their steamroller over it so that it's nice and flat and it cooks more rapidly. And then to make it into one minute oats, they cut each one a couple more times and then to make it instant, they powder it, but it's still the same. It's still the same. Oat. And if you ever have a question that you would like one of our experts to answer, join us for The Exam Room Live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. You can also tweet us your question. Tweet me at Chuck Carroll WLC using that hashtag Exam Room Live. You can also find me on Instagram under that same handle. Let's change gears now and talk to one of the most fascinating women on the planet. Matter of fact, she's so fascinating, you could say that she is out of this world. Dr. Nikki Davis, before she became a lifestyle medicine physician, was a rocket scientist working on NASA's space shuttle program. Talk about your ultimate career change, but she was chasing a dream and chasing her health and the health of others. And that is why she made that transition. And when she did it, she transitioned to become a doctor of lifestyle medicine. So today we're going to be talking about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. How does it differ from when you go to your regular doctor, your primary care physician? What are the differing philosophies there? And what are those six pillars of lifestyle medicine? We're talking about everything from food to positivity. Continuing here on the exam room podcast brought to you by the physicians committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. My next guest is the only person in the history of the exam room who we can say honestly has worked on the space shuttle program. And that means that she is indeed a rocket scientist turned lifestyle medicine physician. If that isn't a career change, I don't know what is. It is simply too cool for school. With that, we welcome Dr. Nikki Davis back to the exam room. Thank you so very much for joining us again. Thank you, Chuck, for having me. I really appreciate it. I well, I mean, for you're here. Like I'm speechless just after reading that intro. For those who aren't really familiar with your background, didn't get a chance to hear you the first time you were on the show. How in the world does one go from being a rocket scientist to being a lifestyle medicine physician? Yeah, a lot of schooling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Way too much schooling. You know, I um, I was always interested in medicine, but specifically in health. So I was always interested in nutrition and just living a healthy life. But when I was in college and kind of deciding what I wanted to do with my life, medicine just seemed like this really long road that just is never ending. And so I really just thought about what could I do that I'm good at math, I'm good at science. And what could I do that you know, could be a good career. And so I looked into engineering and ended up deciding on mechanical engineering. I loved 
the um, the difficulty. I loved the challenge of engineering. Uh, I was, you know, at that time, one of the only women doing it. And it was just exciting. And I really enjoyed the schooling part of it. When I got to actually working the day-to-day -day job, there were some exciting moments. As you said, I worked on the space shuttle program and, you know, I'd have to go into work. I remember one time I had to go to work on the 4th of July at like four o'clock in the morning for a space shuttle launch. So I wasn't there at the launch, but we were remote and we had people walking around the shuttle telling us if there were spots where there was foam missing and and then we would have to determine if that was an issue or not so that was kind of exciting but that happened not as often as as other days and the other days were basically sitting at my computer by myself working you know just doing these uh <laughs> i don't even it's so boring i don't even want to talk about it but basically <laughs> i was just sitting there working on these projects. And it just was very antisocial. It was, you're working on your own and it just didn't fit me. And the other part of it was, I just wasn't passionate about it. When I was wanting to uh, read books or learn more, it wasn't about learning more about engineering. It was always learning more about nutrition and health. And so my company was doing layoffs and they offered for us to voluntarily lay be laid off if we wanted to and get all the benefits of it and i thought this is my chance my husband was not excited about me just deciding to leave my job <laughs> but uh but i did i i just up and left my job and i said you know if i really want to do this now's the time i'm i'm not getting any younger and it was actually my husband's idea he said you know you'd be a really good doctor and you could actually make a big difference and i'd already been vegan plant-based for a long time at that point and loved talking to people about it. And that just kind of started the process of, okay, could I really do this and go back to school again? Uh, but I love a challenge. And so, yeah, so I went back and had to finish medical school and finish residency just this last year in 2020. So now I'm a full-fledged family medicine doctor and lifestyle medicine doctor and living the dream every day now. I love that so much. And as we record <laughs> this, it is Women's History Month. And there is no doubt, Dr. Davis, that you are indeed a trailblazer. I defy anybody to say that there is anybody else out there who followed uh, before you. You know, it, it's just simply extraordinary, that transition. You said, though, when you made this decision that you had already been eating a plant-based diet for some time. When did that first come into your life? Yeah, so it's kind of funny. I think... It's just something hardwired into my brain. When I was younger, I mean, my my dad loved pork chops and potatoes, and I mean, that's what we would be served, but I never liked meat. And when I was 13, I decided that eating meat was unhealthy. And I was not told this by anyone. I didn't read it anywhere, but it just, to me, felt unhealthy. So I decided to stop eating red meat. And that kind of started the transition. It just, I felt better. I, I liked the way that I felt. And as I got older, I started peeling away some of the other animal products. So by the time I was 20, I was off all poultry and fish and everything. And I was basically vegetarian at that point. And then it just kind of was this transition where I just learned, as I learned more and more about the health aspects of eating plant-based, as I learned about um, the way animals are treated, as I learned about the harms to our environment and to the planet, 
I just found that eating plant-based was not only good for myself, but also for so many other things that I ended up eventually going completely vegan and then plant-based. So I would say, you know, it's been with without revealing my age too much, but over 30 years that I've been kind of on this transition of, of being vegetarian and, and going into vegan and plant-based. Again, ahead of the curve, <laughs> trailblazer. I can't say that enough with you. And so I would imagine though, having been so devoted to eating a plant-based diet, the vegan lifestyle for so long, when you made that decision to make the switch, you knew exactly the type of medicine that you wanted to practice. Absolutely. So it was, I wanted to be able to help not only prevent, but to treat and reverse the chronic lifestyle related conditions. And so very early on, that was, that was my goal in going into medical school. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And it just made sense to do family medicine because it's all encompassing. And, and you're really looking at a lot of preventative type measures when you're when you're seeing someone as a family physician, you're trying to help people prevent disease, but also you're just, you can see children, you can see elderly, you can see all walks in between. And that helps to be able to help people in all aspects of life and looking at all conditions too. So family medicine made, made sense. And then luckily for me, lifestyle medicine has been this up and coming uh, aspect of medicine that I was able to jump on board with and become board certified in so that I can not only help people with my family medicine background, but then be able to really help people incorporate making lifestyle changes. Well, let's now talk about what lifestyle medicine is. As you said, it's still relatively new. And so there's a lot of people, well, lifestyle medicine, how does that differ from when I go to see my typical primary care physician? What really differentiates the two type of practices there? Yeah, good question. So, you know, you've got, if you just want to kind of make it very basic, you could look at lifestyle medicine versus conventional medicine. Now, I was trained in conventional medicine, and there's definitely benefits to conventional medicine. If you get a, an infection or you're in a car accident, you have a broken bone, that is important. But it's missing this lifestyle medicine aspect, which is that if you have a lifestyle, if you have a lifestyle that is not conducive to health, your doctor is going to say to you, well, you need to eat a healthier diet or you need to exercise more. Come back and see me in six months. That's what I was taught is it's important. Lifestyle medicine is important, but we're not really taught how to educate our patients and help them through the process of making lifestyle changes. So if you want to look at it as in conventional medicine is more based on treating a disease with medications, surgeries, and then maybe talking about the lifestyle medicine stuff just as an afterthought, like, well, you should really try this. It would be better if you exercise more. Whereas lifestyle medicine is much more focused on, okay, this is a lifestyle related disease like hypertension or diabetes or obesity. And so in order to treat that, you really need to look at what you're missing, which is this, the lifestyle and making those changes. And with lifestyle medicine, it's, it's all evidence-based. So it's not just hooey, it's, you know, we're actually looking at the, the data on what is best for health as far as making lifestyle changes. 
and it's therapeutic approaches. So instead of looking at medicines necessarily, and of course you can still use medicines if needed, but instead of just focusing on medicines as the first line, we're looking at what are the lifestyle changes that someone can make and how as a provider can we help these patients make these lifestyle changes. So it's therapeutic approaches to help not only treat, but prevent and reverse lifestyle related chronic diseases. And that's yeah, really the difference. Let's simplify that even further. I mean, it really is just getting out in front of these chronic conditions that have been plaguing America. And and so many of these experts, not just America, worldwide, so many of the experts, your, your fellow doctors come on the show and they talk about these chronic illnesses and how preventable so many of these cases actually are. And so lifestyle medicine is a way really then to cut down on those numbers the best that we possibly know how, and that is by taking control of our diet and implementing those lifestyle changes. So what you're going to be speaking about at this upcoming event, uh, spring into your best future, I, I do believe I may have, yeah, spring, spring into, into your, your best, best life. Best life, best life, yes. the best life, man. I love the best life. <laughs> but that is coming up on Saturday. That's uh, with Salt Lake Thrive, a phenomenal organization. Uh, you are going to be talking about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. So what I want to do here is for the time that we have left, actually run down those six pillars, talk a little bit about them, and of course, save plenty for uh, the actual presentation at the event. But the first one is the all important one that gets talked about so much here on the exam room. And that is eating a whole food plant based diet. Is there a reason that this is number one, I, I would have to think that this is not necessarily coincidental. I would agree with that. And of course I am biased because that's what I love talking about the most is nutrition. I think if you think about every single day, at least three times a day, we're putting things into our mouths that goes through our body. I mean, it's affecting you all day, every day. So nutrition is just so important when you're talking about lifestyle medicine. You can't focus on the other five pillars of lifestyle medicine, which we'll talk about in a moment without focusing on the first one, which is a whole food plant-based diet. It just, you'll you'll improve your health for sure, but if you really wanna get the most bang for your buck, a whole food plant-based diet is, it just improves so many things. I mean, even just eating that way helps improve things like your mood and eating healthier causes you to want to do other things that are healthier. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you eat healthier, it makes you want to go out and get some exercise and walk more. Uh, it's just, it's the snowball effect. You know what the crazy thing is, is yeah, you, it absolutely does. But even uh, if I've been lazy for a week or two and, and I'm not perfect, so that still does happen. What amazes me by eating so cleanly is how well I do, even if I feel like I'm technically out of shape. It, it takes me a lot less time to rebound compared to when I was eating that standard American high fat diet. Now, granted at that point I was, you know, 420 pounds, but still it never ceases to amaze me how quickly, you know, it, it just doesn't take a whole lot to get going there. Yeah, I agree. Same thing with me. And you know, Chuck, nobody's perfect. <laughs> Nobody. I'm not perfect either. <laughs> so, you know, and I agree. I, I feel the same way. Um, you know, when I'm not at my best, when I haven't exercised for a few days or even longer, I mean, it's been hard with the pandemic. Uh, you know, 
it, it is, it's, it's once you get back on it again, you're like, oh, actually this isn't so bad getting back to this again and, and you feel good and, and you feel like you can keep going. Absolutely. And physical activity is actually the second pillar here. So how important is that in terms of warding off chronic diseases here? Yeah, there's been really some great studies that show that the more physical activity that you have, the less likely you are to have comorbidities and mortality. And it's, it's kind of exponential in which you get a lot of benefit at a certain amount. And then if you get even more, you're going to get more benefit, but it's not as much. And so what we found is that really to get the most out of it, if you do 150 minutes a week of moderate physical activity, um, you're getting really most of that benefit. And so you can increase it from there and you will get increased benefit, but it's not as much. So, you know, that 80-20 rule, you're, you're getting the most of it, that 80% really, if you're going to, if you do the 150 minutes per week. And that's 30 minutes, five days a week of moderate define, activity. Yeah. Define what moderate activity actually is. Yeah. So uh, moderate activity is where when you're doing this activity, you can talk, you can't sing. So if you're looking at like mild activity, light activity, you can talk and sing. Moderate would be that you can talk, but you can't sing. And then vigorous activity, you can't, you can't talk at all. Mm, <laughs> you're mm. really huffing. So that's moderate <laughs> activity. You're just, as long as you can't sing while you're doing it, then you've reached that. Gotcha. All right. And that's why we don't see American Idol auditions on a treadmill. Okay. So now it all <laughs> makes perfect sense. Um, okay. Number three, this is a big one, especially throughout the pandemic. And we've seen so many jobs being lost. We've seen so many people struggling financially and, you know, stress is just a part of life as it is under ordinary circumstances, certainly been compounded here over the last 12 months. Number three is stress management. So when you are working with your patients, how do you talk to them about coping with stress? Right. So stress management is one of those things that you think, well, I'm just going to have stress and that's, I can't, ha I can't do anything different because this is my job. It's stressful and there's nothing I can do about it, but that's not true. So you can see your doctor, you can see a, a lifestyle medicine doctor, and you can come up with a plan to help deal with the stress in your life. And, and that just dealing with it and making a plan for how to react when things get ex um, extremely stressful, that is going to help you not have the effects of stress as much as if you didn't have a plan in place at all. And like you said, like with the pandemic, pe people losing their jobs, that can affect your health. So it's not just mentally that I feel stressed, it actually affects your body. When you have stress in your body, that lowers your immune response. And so if you're concerned about having your body be at, you know, at, at peak immune capability, especially when you're talking about having this, the COVID virus out there, having the least amount of stress possible is actually gonna help your immune function. And we've noticed that in studies there are, you know, unfortunately when people have something stressful in their work environment or at home, it can affect your heart health, it can affect even just, you know, having other health conditions. I mean, it affects your entire body having that increased stress all the time. 
And along with that stress here in the same pillar is also emotional wellness. Um, part of that goes to, to stress, obviously. But what about if somebody is, uh, they suffer from depression or they've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or some other form of mental illness? How then can lifestyle medicine help um, them alleviate some of what's going on with them, at least maybe lessen the severity of their illness? Is, is that possible? It is. It's it's really important that as we're looking at stress, you know, as you're talking with your physician or, you know, even just looking at yourself, being aware that some people have underlying mental health conditions such as depression or anxiety, and that can make stress feel even worse. So definitely you want to be aware of that those conditions that you have underlying because those conditions are treatable absolutely we've got cognitive behavioral therapy that is is really important in helping people deal with depression and anxiety um but overall lifestyle medicine you know we look at other things too so um looking at the like you were saying the emotional wellness there are things that you can do i mean i've got a nice list of things like connecting with others of course, that's something that's difficult to do now with the pandemic, but it's still so important. And so finding ways around that to connect with others, involvement in activities. So anything that you can do to be involved in some sort of activity, if it's not you know, sitting with thousands of other people watching uh, you know, a game or something, it's you know, at least finding a way to connect with others um, and do activities. Um, in an, in a, in another way. So you've got to find a way to continue to do that. The other things are, that are important are like relaxation. So things that help you relax, whether that's listening to music or doing yoga or meditating or even dancing things that those, all those things can help with emotional wellness, um, creative hobbies. So during the pandemic, I know a lot of people are coming up with fun things to do at home. And in fact, Chuck, do you want to see the Thing that I've been doing that's my creative hobby. <laughs> I would absolutely love to wow us. This is a time this would come up. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. America's got talent and Dr. Davis is about to prove it. <laughs> what, what have you been up to? So this is embroidery. <laughs> so it's kind of a long lost art. I think this is something that we know our grandparents used to do. And it's just kind of one of those fun things that you can be creative with. And, and it's just a needle and thread with some fabric and making designs and shapes. So that's what I've been doing lately. I'm impressed. Emotional wellness. <laughs> I, I'm definitely impressed. I, I like the cactus there. Um, are you going to turn into one of those people that walks around with a big ball of yarn with you wherever you go? And then you start to, you know, stitch and knit scarves and things like that. Is that kind of how this is going to progress? Are we going to see you on Etsy anytime soon? <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't put it past me. Definitely. That's a possibility. Yes. <laughs> oh man, you are the best. All right. My but, dad uh, was an artist. So oh, was he? I've got that okay. creative background. Yeah. Oh, oh, well now that explains it all. Okay. Well, we're going to get you on a future episode. We're going to keep tabs on how this is progressing. Maybe, you know, we can uh, commission you to do some custom art here for the show. Oh, I um, love that. I love it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, all right. But between the hobby and your family and your practice, uh, there's not a whole heck of a lot of time for sleep. But nonetheless, this is crucially important when you're talking about lifestyle medicine. In fact, it is the fourth pillar. Yes. 
So sleep, absolutely. I think most people understand that sleep is important because you know that when you don't get it, you don't feel good. And I know this as a resident physician working nights for a long time, it is tough when you don't have sleep. So that's one benefit of being done with residency is I actually get some sleep now. And also my kid is older, <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, a lot of people don't get good sleep. It's it's kind of one of those things that's rampant around the United States and, and the world that we just don't get enough sleep and it's not good sleep. And I think it's, you know, a lot of us are busy, but then, you know, there are things that we can do to help us get better sleep and help us sleep better and um, get to sleep better. And some things that I'm sure a lot of people know, making sure that your room is is cool and dark. But some things that I wasn't aware of until I started studying lifestyle medicine, that your body wants your extremities to be warm before it can start initiating sleep. And so it's really important that your feet and hands are warm because if that does not happen, your body is like, nope, we're not ready for sleep. And so just something simple like putting socks on or having a, a heating pad to help heat up your feet, that can help you initiate sleep. And uh, so that's just kind of one of the fun things to be aware of. And then just being aware of making sure that you're not having your sleep schedule be so different day to day. So really kind of making sure that when you're waking up and you're going to bed is about the same time every day, because really your body is fully aware of when it's got light and when it has dark and it prepares you for sleep based on that. And so if you're staying up really late at night and you're forcing yourself to stay awake when it's dark outside, that can affect your circadian rhythm and, and how your, your body does with sleep. So really kind of sticking to the same time that you wake up and same time that you go to sleep. And that can be hard because you want to stay up late on the weekends and kind of relax. Um, but as best you can to stay on that kind of same time schedule is, is, is good. Admittedly, I am somewhat of a night owl. I find it very hard to go to sleep before midnight, but uh, now with the pandemic and being able to work from home, I'm also able to sleep a little bit later. You know, my commute is literally to my office across the hall from my bedroom. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious for those who are routinely staying up a little bit later, but they are on that same schedule or even those who, who work overnight shifts, how does that affect their circadian rhythm? And is it even possible for night owls or those who do work those overnight shifts to um, get that same quality sleep? Yeah, I think it is. I think that really focusing on making sure that the type of sleep you're getting is is good sleep. So if you're going to bed, say you, Chuck, are going to bed at midnight, just making sure that the room is, is such that you're going to get good sleep. So the room is dark, making sure that it is cool. You don't want your room to be too hot. You, you know, if you think back before we used to have houses, it you would be a little bit cooler sleeping at night because you were going to be sleeping you know either in a shelter where you still had some of that cold air coming through or or you're sleeping outside it's natural for your body to to expect to be cool at night and so just making sure that your environment is such that that you have that kind of benefit and and i would say people who are working overnight 
really making sure that when you are sleeping, if you're sleeping during the day, that your body gets that benefit of not having light. And so maybe wearing a mask, um, making sure you have those blackout curtains so that your body has that dark room and it feels like it's nighttime. You just hit on two of the keys, blackout curtains and sleep masks. I just got this amazing sleep mask off of Amazon. It is like the most glorious invention in the history <laughs> of inventions. Like I have two really bright lights shining on me right now. If I put on this mask, it would be like pitch black dark in here. It is phenomenal. And it has helped me uh, sleep better through the night, especially because my wife, she gets up earlier than I do. And that used to yep. wake me up. But with this mask, I'm telling you, boom, I'm gone. Nice, deep, yep. dark sleep. Uh, all right. We could talk more about that, but instead let's move on to pillar number five, and that is avoiding risky substances. Now that to me seems like a kind of vague description, like a risky <laughs> substance to me could be a grilled stuffed burrito from Taco Bell. Uh, a risky <laughs> substance for somebody else could be a narcotic. So what, what define in these terms what a risky substance is. Right. It's It could be uh, left, left out Chinese food, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, you know, lifestyle medicine is one in which we're looking at how can we improve people's health with making lifestyle changes? And so when we're talking about risky substances, we look at things that really affect people's health. And for instance, a risky substance might be tobacco, it might be alcohol. And so as a lifestyle medicine doctor, we're looking at how can we help these people overcome these addictions or these um, substances that are not doing them any good, that are, are causing their health to be less than their best. So we work with people to help them get through trying to quit smoking or trying to quit drinking heavily or drinking excessively, because we know that especially tobacco, I mean, that, that is, it's, it causes lung cancer. It causes COPD. It is, it is so horribly unhealthy. And I know that everybody knows this now, and it wasn't something that we always knew. I mean, doctors used to promote smoking, but now we know this, that, that smoking is, is incredibly unhealthy. And the nice thing now that I have the lifestyle medicine background is I don't just have someone come into me and say, I wanna quit smoking, what should I do? And I say, okay, call the quit line. Uh, you could start this medication that'll help the cravings. We can still do those things as lifestyle medicine doctors, but even more importantly is coming up with the plan and helping people get to the point where they, they can quit and be successful. And coming up with that plan, I mean, it's kind of like when you're changing your diet from the standard American diet to a whole food plant-based diet, you have to come up with a plan. What are you going to do when you are over at someone's house and they put this unhealthy food in front of you? What is the plan for that? And it's the same thing with smoking. It's the same thing with alcohol. You've got to have a plan so that you know what are you going to do in those circumstances and how are you going to get through and be successful. 
Yeah, that's so key with any of the risky substances is having that plan because if it's a food, those cravings are going to hit. Um, they, and you will be around people who don't quite understand what it is that you're going through and uh, may offer you a drink when you really shouldn't be having that drink. Or it could be a situation where you feel like, hey, you've quit smoking 10 years ago. You can have just one and I'll be okay. Well, what is your plan to convince yourself otherwise? So like that, that to me is key for long-term success. So I'm really glad that that has made the list. And now let's take it home with something that is definitely timely. Uh, here during the pandemic. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but a positive psychological attitude and social connectedness. Obviously, a great deal of distance between ourselves and our loved ones right now throughout this pandemic, but the, the psychological, uh, the positive mental attitude there, I think that that is something that we can really work on regardless of circumstance, regardless of time of year, regardless of what's going out, going on outside of your own home. How important is having that PMA, as I like to call it, to your overall health here with lifestyle medicine? Yeah, so positive psychology is so important and it's looking at having a positive affect. And really what that means is you have a positive outlook on the past, you are happy about the present and you're or you're happy about the present and the president <laughs> and you are um, you're hopeful for the future. So that's really what a positive affect is. And so positive psychology plays on having this positive affect, but also it looks at, you know, how, how do you go about having a positive outlook? And some of those things are like looking at what are you grateful for? So not just about what bad things have happened to me. It's about what are the things that are great that I am grateful for? That's something that a lot of us, I think, struggle with nowadays with having the pandemic is it's really hard to, to have hope and to feel grateful for things because for a lot of us, so many things have gone wrong and so many things have affected us with this that being able to, say, take a journal and write maybe every night three things that you're grateful for um, that can really help with just having that positive outlook, that positive effect, affect in life. So positive psychology is, is extremely important. And going on that too is the social connectedness. That is part of the sixth pillar and it's so important. And of course, again, it's so hard to get that social connectedness right now with what we're facing. Um, but it's interesting because there have been studies that have been done about social connectedness. And there was actually one that was a 75 year cohort. And a cohort just means that it's a longitudinal study that is looking at a certain uh, group of people over a long period of time. And what they found was that the single most important predictor for happiness and longevity was social connectedness. So it's not something that we can just say, oh, you know, if I had, more better relationships, if I saw people more, that would be beneficial. It really does make a huge impact on our health. So both positive psychology and social connectedness are extremely important and that's why they're part of the lifestyle medicine pillars. Can social connectedness be uh, the 
friends that we make online now, you know, people who we've met on Facebook or other social media, we interact with them. It seems like regardless of pandemic or otherwise, we interact more with people on Twitter and Instagram than we do in our everyday lives. Um, does that count towards social connectedness or is that like completely too new to even be able to answer that question? Oh, that is such a good question because normally you would think that yes, having that connection would be beneficial, but there have already been studies about this where they found that people who use social media more are more depressed. Now, does that mean that mm. social media, being on social media causes you to become more depressed or does it mean that if you are more depressed, you're more likely to use social media? I don't know. But it certainly does not say that social media is helping our mental health by any means. And so I would not rely on that for social connectedness. I think it really, I mean, I don't know about you, Chuck, but when I haven't been able to hug someone in a long time, and then you have that hug with someone, there's nothing, you know, you can't get a like on Facebook and that's not the same thing, right? Really <laughs> hugging someone in person and being there to laugh with someone and connect with someone in person there's just there's no replacement for that no no doubt no doubt by the way you can follow us uh, on twitter and instagram at pcrm at physicians committee uh, i'm at chuck carroll wlc uh, i promise we'll put material up that we will do our best not to depress you um my my my, my best guess do you want to throw your handles in as long as we're plugging everything here Oh, sure. Why not? So, and I, actually it's right here. It says at Nikki Davis MD. So you can find me on Instagram and Facebook and you can also go to my website, drnickydavis.com. And, uh, and Chuck, I'll be available pretty soon for telehealth appointments. I'll be working with plant-based telehealth. So you can go on there and, and make an appointment with me. Outstanding. That is uh, phenomenal. So keep us abreast of that. And we will definitely let our viewers and listeners know exactly when you're up and running with that. But uh, more to the immediate future coming up on Saturday, we do have this big event coming up spring into your best life. Um, you're going to be talking more in depth about what it is that we discussed here today. And this is an absolutely free event. And we'll put a link to register in the episode notes or the show description. So go ahead, click on that. This is Saturday, March 20th. And, and register there. Um, and there are so many people who are going to be speaking there. It's it's not just you uh, who will be talking. Um, who else is is coming up at this event? Yeah, so I'll I'll be speaking about lifestyle medicine, and then we've got an orthopedic surgeon uh, who I know here in he's actually in Park City, Utah, uh, but he'll be speaking about the benefits of just eating plant based. So that'll be fantastic to hear from him. And then we are going to have a uh, a midwife who's going to be going through some meditation and stress reduction techniques, which perfectly aligns with the lifestyle medicine stuff that we were talking about. Uh, and then we'll have a, um, a uh, I'm trying to think of the name of, it's uh, not a physical therapist. Um, a physical fitness instructor, maybe? Yeah, like a physical fitness instructor, an expert in physical fitness. And he's going to be uh, going through kind of some healthy ways to increase our physical activity. So that's cool. And I understand that he's uh, been vegan himself for more than 25 years. So yes. the man definitely uh, knows what he's talking about. And what really caught my eye, uh, by the by, like if I was going to sign up, this is what was going to draw me in is the fact that there will be a cooking demonstration for healthy yes. snacks. 
snacks are critical, especially when you're first transitioning to that vegan diet and you don't know what in the world to eat. So here's, you know, the answer to that question. Well, what do you eat in a day? Have some snacks. You're going to show the people not just what to eat, but how to make it. That's very cool. Yes. Yes. So that'll be fun. I always love watching cooking demos. So that's going to be a lot of fun to see. Snacks. Of course, of Yay, course. <laughs> Dr. Nikki Davis, thank you so very much for your time. This has been really enlightening. Well, thank you so much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. If you scroll on down to the episode notes, you will find a link to register for the Spring Into Your Best Life Summit completely free. Dr. Nikki Davis, rocket scientist, working with NASA, now a lifestyle medicine physician. Rocket scientist turned doctor. Kind of makes you wonder what you did with your life, right? Unbelievable. Her story is just epic, epic, epic. And with it being Women's History Month, there's no doubt that she deserves a more than just a pat on the back. I mean, she is just a trailblazer you know, laying the path for so many to follow in her footsteps to do whatever it is that they want to do to help make the world a healthier place. My goodness gracious, what a transition. You, you are truly an idol, Dr. Davis. Let's talk about you again, really quickly, and your health. How are you feeling after hearing the show today? You still have some questions that you would like answered, some things that you would like to improve about your own health? Well, let's go ahead and help you with that. You can make an appointment to visit with any one of our plant-based doctors or dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center. Telemedicine visits are available now in more than a quarter of the country. To make your appointment today, visit barnardmedical.org or pick up the phone and do it old school. 202-527-7500 to schedule an appointment and get that full list of states where services are available. Insurance is accepted. And once you're done improving your own health, how would you like to help save the life of someone else? You can do that right now by subscribing to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available, completely free. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review. Because every new five-star rating, every new subscription and nice review that comes in helps put more of a spotlight on this show and it's potentially life-saving and certainly life-changing information. It helps get this information to the hands of those who need it the most. So let's help save some lives. Do that right now by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee and leaving that five-star rating. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us and fielding so many of your amazing questions and to the most extraordinary woman perhaps to have ever been on the exam room, Dr. Nikki Davis. Thank you so very much for bestowing your wisdom with us today as well. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. We'll talk to you again next time, but until then, stay safe take a stand and keep it plant-based. <laughs>